Brilliant. Uh, yeah, a bit different this morning, I think, but um, well, it depends if you've heard me preach before. I think it's different, but this is what God's been laying on my heart and um, for a good, a good while, so I've just got to go with it and, uh, and be obedient. I want to start this morning with something that I learned a lot of years ago and um, I've adjusted it and turned it a little bit to hopefully um, apply to us today. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the preciousness of your word. We thank you for the awesomeness of your word, that your word is truth and that it never fails. And Father, I just pray that you will pull from what we share this morning exactly what you would have your people to hear in this place. And we give you all the praise, all the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I want to ask a question, I want to ask two questions. And the first one is, who or what is on the throne of your life? Who or what is on the throne of your life? If you didn't know there was a throne in your life, well, there is. There's that place. And if we can just put image one up, please. Um, The circle (coughs) represents your life. The chair represents the throne of your life, of your heart. And we're going to look this morning at what is on the throne of our life. Maybe it's a habit, maybe it's a pastime, maybe it's people in your lives, maybe it's something that actually you're quite addicted to. And the second question, and Pastor Nathan actually asked this question almost in passing just a few weeks ago, what is your first thought when you wake up in the morning? Where does your first thought go when you first wake up? Don't want you to answer me, or would you even answer the person next to you, because it might not be appropriate. I want you to answer only all of these questions this morning unto God. Where does your first thought go when you wake in the morning? Uh, one of the Bethel, Bethel worship songs, Endless Hallelujah, says, In the morning when I rise to meet you, in the morning when I lift my eyes, you're the only one I want to cling to. You're the first thought on my mind. In other words, he's singing, Jesus, you are the first thought on my mind. So just to help, I know some people like visuals. So we've got one a few images for you to look at this morning. Very basic. But if you can think of your life as being that circle and that chair as being the throne of your heart and of your life. And we change to image two, and you'll see it's changed quite dramatically. And I'll talk you through it. So the S, which is on the chair, the S, which is on the throne, stands for yourself, your ego, who you are, what you think about yourself. You are on the throne of your life. The various circles of different shapes, the on there are the things in your life, your interests, your habits, your hobbies, your concerns, your friends, your family, your worries. In other words, the stuff of life. And we all have stuff in our lives. And it's just sort of random, I think would be my expression. And then you see down at this bottom corner, you see the cross. And the cross, of course, represents Christ. And you also see that that cross is outside of the circle of your life. And maybe this image represents the life of some of you here this morning. Maybe life is just all chaos. 
You try very hard to sort your life, but you never feel when you get to the end of the day that you've really succeeded. Last week, I was um, out walking with, I do most days, but I was out walking and talking to the Lord, and I was talking to him about what I was going to bring, which is what I normally do. And as I was doing this, I found some words came to my mind, and I took a few minutes, and I thought, where have they come from? And so I'm going to go back a long way and tell you that when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I was part of a choir that was actually formed from the chapels that I was part of to uh, back Cliff Richard singing at the City Hall. That's my one claim to fame, apart from loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that choir of about 100 continued all around the country, would go and uh, sing and give performances at churches and different events and even went into Durham Prison a couple of times. And within that group of men and women, there was a couple of us that were often asked to uh, do a reading, um, a monologue, a Bible reading. And suddenly I realized, walking along the seafront, these were the words from down through the ages that were coming to mind. And I was sort of questioning why. And then I realized why, because I think it fits in exactly with where we are today. So trusting, trusting again that I'll remember because uh, I have no record of these, this is what I believe that I recited all those years ago. If access to heaven depended on you, on the number of good deeds you'd done, what a wonderful picture you'd paint of yourself. I'm quite sure you'd rate second to none. But God's not concerned with the things you've achieved, though those things may be many or few. There's only one way by which men can reach God. And that doesn't mean all men but you. For Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And it's only on seeing that sin-cleansing blood that the Father will say, enter in. So let's back this up with scripture. What I have just recited to you is actually based in the word of God. And when we're telling people about Jesus, the first scripture we would often go to is John 3.16. Many of you will know it. Many of you who have been to big sporting events, who have watched international sports, who've watched things like the Olympics, will often see around the advertising hoardings around the stadium this scripture because Christians get in there and put it in place. And it's John 3.16 and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We often say to people, put your name in there. Now, it doesn't mean messing with scripture, but it's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that, pop your name in, believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I just want to give you the message version of that verse, because I found it very interesting. It says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. To me, that sounds a bit of a no-brainer. If you want to have a whole and lasting life, if you don't want to be destroyed, if you don't want to struggle through your life, if you don't want to get to the end of your life and think, for goodness, what was all that about? Then that's what you need to do. You need to be inviting Jesus Christ into your heart. 
Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you remember in the monologue it said, and all men, and that means you too? Because sometimes we think, well, we're okay. I'm all right. That's, that, that, that Christian, that love stuff's just for those people. I don't need that. But it says, for all have sinned. And if we're here this morning and we think we haven't, well, we're in a bit of a fog. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you know, there's another verse in Romans 5, verse 8, that says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 14, verse 6, we've sung it this morning. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And a beautiful verse in Ephesians says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it doesn't matter how good we are, how much we think we can do, how kind we are to people, it's still all through Jesus. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if we think that, well, we're, we're somewhere in that image, we can imagine ourselves there. Those words of scripture, those words of that poem, really show us the way to salvation. They show us the way to inviting the Lord Jesus Christ to be Lord and Saviour. So just to bring it into reality for myself, when I was 16, I went to a young people's meeting, which was the young people of all of the churches that I was associated with. And so I was going to say very similar to the events that Sean and Adam put on, but, you know, back in the day, it was very similar. There was special music that young people would enjoy. There was a special speaker that young people would understand. And in that meeting and at the end of that message, the guy who came from Bankhead in fence houses outside of Hortonley Spring, he made an appeal. He gave an invitation. And something started to tug in my heart. And I looked along the road at my friends that I'd come with. And I looked over at the side at a boy who was a couple of years older than me, who I really liked. And I thought, can't do anything with all of these people around. But then the tugging became a thumping. And I knew I had to respond. I was in Sunday school. I was involved in so many things. But I knew at that moment in time that there had to be a response and it didn't matter what anyone around me thought. It didn't matter who was there, who wasn't there. This was a moment between me and Jesus, who I knew about, but I needed to get to know in my heart. And so that is what I did that night in April. I nearly told you the year there. We'll just miss that bit out. And maybe some of you have got that tugging in your heart this morning. I love that song that we sang with the, uh, what I think is the sort of Scottish scenery in the background with a little cottage. I love the words of that song because they're real and they're true. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. And maybe you are feeling that this morning. And if you are, don't deny it. And if you are, then come. Come at the end of this service. And give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter whether you've come to church for years and years. 
And you think, well, what will people think? I'm, I'm, I'm always here. I can tell you in 1984, at the Billy Graham Crusade in Roker Park, where I was volunteering there as a counsellor and a follow-up worker, there were people, when the invitation was given, came out of the choir. And the choir was made up of people from churches. But there were people who went to church, who liked to sing in the choir, but they hadn't given their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And every night I was there, tears flowed down my face as I talked to people and listened to them and led them to the Lord on the invitation of Dr. Billy Graham. So it doesn't matter whether you've been here forever in a day. If you don't know Jesus in your heart, this is what we need to do. Why do we need to do it? Because the world is dark and is sadly getting darker. And you don't have to listen to the news every day to know that. You can just walk along the street and you hear the things that are happening. Does life go completely smoothly when we get to know Jesus? No, because we still live in a fallen world. Stuff still happens. But when we do, then we have someone to walk through life with. If we go from image two to image three, I want you to see the change there. This shows us a life where Jesus has been invited to come in. The circle still represents your life. You now see that the cross representing Christ is on the throne. You see that self is somewhere in that life. Obviously, we're still here, but is subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see all the things that were represented by those circles, your family, your friends, your worries, your concerns, your job, the things that you like to do, they're all still there. But now there's no chaos. Now they are all in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are yielded to him. They are all being directed by him. And there is order and harmony. You know, in the book of Genesis, it says that there was... Pretty much it says that there was chaos until God spoke and God brought order. And if there's chaos in your life this morning, then you need the Lord Jesus Christ to bring order into your life. So he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Matthew 28, he says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. But what does it What keeps us in, what is this thing that keeps us in in continued blessing? Well, I believe what it is, is to keep checking what's on the throne. Keep checking what's on the throne of your heart. This was left in my garage when I moved in, so I'm sorry it's a bit tatty. But I know that if you see a visual, you will remember it. You remember it more than any words that I say this morning. And I want you to think of a throne in your life. And I want you to have a look and see what is on the throne. And maybe every morning that you wake up, there's something different on the throne. Maybe something's crept onto the throne. Maybe your thoughts come during the night. And I want you to go to it and sweep it off. I want you to get it off the throne and say, Jesus, if you're not on the throne of my heart, if you're not in that right place, then my life's just going to be a mess today. And no, I'm not suggesting it's easy, but it is necessary 
if we want to grow as believers, if we want to grow as Christians, to check that throne, what do you think, once a week? Every day? Maybe you need to check that throne hourly. Maybe you need to check it moment by moment. Maybe you watch something on the TV and something's on the throne instead of Jesus. Some thoughts gone through your head, something that you've seen, something that you've heard. What's on the throne? I'm sure we don't purposely watch stuff on TV that's not appropriate, but we flick channels, things come on, adverts come on, and we see things. And things take a hold in our life. And we need to check what's on the throne. We need to check what's there. The situations that we go through each day. We need to say, Lord Jesus, are you still enthroned in my life? Or has something else crept on? Has something else taken place and removed you, Lord, from your rightful place? That's the thing. It's his rightful place. It's his rightful place. So keep checking. Often when we, we have communion, we use the, 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 the scripture from 1 Corinthians 11, and it says, but let a man examine himself. You know, we, we, we should never take communion until we've examined our hearts to see what's there. To see how we are with Jesus. Let a man examine himself. It was an old worship song we used to sing, Jesus, we enthrone you. We could sing it now. Jesus, we enthrone you. We proclaim you our king. Standing here in the midst of us, we raise you up with our praise. And as we worship, build a throne. And as we worship, build a throne. And as we worship, build a throne. Come, Lord Jesus, and take your place. So what does it mean to enthrone? You think of throne, you think of uh, our lovely queen, we think of the royal family, we think of the time when she was sat upon that throne and a crown put upon her head and a scepter put in her hand. But what does it mean to enthrone in our lives? Well, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says it means to seat in a place associated with a position of authority or influence, to assign supreme virtue or value to this is just what the dictionary says to exalt to dignify to elevate to exalt and glorify and magnify i think that sort of speaks pretty much about jesus about what we should be doing with him in our lives that we should be assigning him supreme virtue we should be giving him value we should be exalting him we should be glorifying him. We should be magnifying him. We should be elevating him. And so from that image that you're looking at on the screen now, we get a glimpse of what can happen when Jesus is given his rightful place. The word enthrone is actually a verb, which means it's, it's an action word. It, it's, it's something that we do. It's, it's a decision that we make, it's a choice that we make. We, we decide whether or not we are going to give precedence to what or who is on the throne of our hearts. It's not forced, Jesus won't force his way into your life. 
He won't say, I want to be on this throne of your heart. I must sit here. He doesn't say that. He gives us a choice. He gives us a choice whether we allow him to take precedence in our life from all of the other things that go on. But is it self-importance that's on the throne of your heart this morning? Is it self-interest? What I can do, what I'm able, it's all about me. Is it heartache? Is it disappointment? Is it disillusionment? Is it fear? What is on the throne of your heart this morning? We've got to keep checking, but you know what? The exciting thing is that the person who shows us the things, who shows us the stuff in our lives that's wrong, who is responsible for pointing out the people that we hang out with that maybe we shouldn't, who is responsible for saying, well, that habit, that anxiety, is worry is, is, is not really good. The person who's responsible is Jesus once we've invited him into our hearts. And he will. If you take yourself to him every day, he'll just point out what's wrong. Those words that you were saying, son, daughter, they didn't bring me glory. Those words that escaped from your mouth, that swear word that came out when you were standing in the queue and somebody pushed in front of you, that didn't give me glory. That didn't let people around see that you belong to me. Well, I've seen them come out of that church, you know. Did you hear what they were saying? Doesn't give him glory. Doesn't draw people to him. Doesn't want folks to know the Jesus who we know. But it's him that's responsible. It's not those around us. It's not about criticism or judgment. It's about what Jesus will show you. And he will convict you. Maybe when you're reading your Bible. Maybe when you're listening to someone preach or teach. Maybe when you're singing a worship song and that word just grabs your heart. And you think, yeah, that's just jumped out at me. And I really need to make a change in my life. Ultimately, whether it's someone's testimony that you're listening to, ultimately it is the Holy Spirit tugging at our hearts. And it is always the Holy Spirit drawing us to Jesus. That's why he speaks to us in that way. And you know, we all need an encounter with Jesus. He's the answer. He is the answer to every need that we have in our life. Amen. And back in, back in January, Pastor Nathan began sharing around the scripture from Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. And I know that we, we, we've had it every week and it's been up there on the screen. And let me just read a little bit. It says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I wonder what we've been doing with that scripture every week that we've heard it. I wonder what we do when we go away from here. The way that I was brought up, and we don't go there today, but I was actually discouraged from asking questions. And a lot of my life has been lived that way because it was a bit of learned behaviour. 
But suddenly I started, after a Sunday, to start asking the Lord about these scriptures. And I started saying, is the light that is in me shining? Is it shining bright? When I'm out and I meet people, do they see Jesus? And I've started to question, is what I do glorifying God? Do people want to know the Jesus that they think I represent, or do they not? If that light isn't shining brightly, then what is preventing it? What is preventing it? And perhaps it's to do with what is on the throne. What is on the throne of our hearts. And I just want to take a few minutes now to tell you of one of my heroes. I want to tell you about a lady who was born in Holland in the Netherlands. She was called Corrie Ten Boom. She was born on the 15th of April, 1892. She had Christian parents, Christian brothers and sisters, and she too gave her heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have a very special place in my heart for this person. And so mum had died and she lived at home with her widowed father and with her older sister and two of the other siblings were married and out of the home. Her father was an exceptional man. He was very, very well respected in the town where they lived. He was very, very well respected in the job that he had. He was a watchmaker. was said you could take any watch to Casper Ten Boom and it would be repaired perfectly. He lectured on the mechanics and the, the workings of how watches and clocks were put together. But he was also very, uh, um, also very uh, exceptional and very respected as a Christian in the community. He was one of the leaders in the church and everyone loved this family. There were often other people coming to stay at the house. Other relatives would come and stay. Uh, they would take the children of missionaries who'd gone abroad and they would look after them. So this was always a very busy house. The coffee was always on. There was always soup on the hearth. It was a very loving and welcoming home. And then came World War II and Hitler's army invaded the Netherlands with the intention of wiping out all of the Jewish people. We call that the Holocaust. <coughs> and what the Gestapo decided was that all Jewish people would wear a yellow star as an armband or maybe on the back of their coat. And Caspar Ten Boom, at 81 years of age, decided that, well, he wasn't Jewish but he would align himself with God's chosen people and that he would obtain one of these yellow stars and he would wear it on his clothing as well, which meant that if they went to the store, they were pushed to the back. If they went in a queue, they were kicked over and they were ignored. And so he put himself alongside people who were being badly treated because these were God's chosen people, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And so he um, decided to do this and he and his family hid Jews within their home. They hid the Jewish people. If you've never seen the film The Hiding Place, let me highly recommend it to you and also a box of tissues at the same time. 
So in, in Corrie's bedroom, a hole was made in the wall, a partition was there made, a, a false room was made behind, and, and Jewish people were hidden in there, and the wardrobe was put up against the wall. And every time there was a search, they were terrified. Would they be found? Because if they were, they would be taken away to the gas chambers. And for a period of time, a considerable period of time, this lovely family rescued, with the help of the underground, over 800 Jewish people. Corrie helped him. Betsy helped him. The people of the uh, Dutch underground helped. And so many were unable to escape. But on the 28th of February in 1944, this beautiful family were arrested. They were betrayed. And the Gestapo came. And they took them to a concentration camp in the south part of Holland. It was a political concentration camp. The three members of that family were separated. And Caspar died ten days later in that prison two months before his 85th birthday. I'm stressing the numbers because I want you to grasp the age of these people who did this. We're not talking about teenagers doing it. Yeah, I can do this. We're talking about older, elderly people. And Corrie and her sister Betsy were transferred, were transferred uh, eventually to um, Ravensbrück Labour Concentration Camp in Germany. And I've got an image that I would like you to look at. I don't want it to shock you, but yes, I do. <coughs> Obviously, it's not a photograph, but it's a drawing taken from detailed information that that is the conditions in which Corrie and Betsy Ten Boom lived in Ravensbrück concentration camp. When they first arrived there, the women were all told to strip completely, go through a shower, and they were given a thin prison dress to wear. Often they were to stand on parade outside in the snow, wearing nothing more than this thin cotton prison dress. And somehow, Corrie had managed to take in with her a small Bible. She'd stuffed it behind some pipes when they'd been sent into the shower room. If it was found, that would be the end of her. And somehow, she managed to get it out again as they got these little dresses on. And then they had to go through a whole row of guards who checked them down, front and back. And as she stood for her turn, she knew that this little Bible that she'd tucked under her sleeve... The person in front was checked, the one in front was checked, the one in front was checked. And as it came to Corrie, she sort of hesitated as she moved forward because no doubt fear was gripping her. And one of the guards just pushed her on her shoulder, hurry up, or whatever it was in their language. And it meant that she didn't get checked. And it meant that she was still in the queue, but it meant that she had a little Bible in her sleeve. And maybe what you can see on that image, about sort of there, is Corrie and her sister with their little Bible. 
and they would read the Bible to the hundreds of women every morning, every night. They had Bible studies. They taught these women who were full of anger and full of hate that there was a God who loved them, even in that despicable place. And the light shone in that prison. And Betsy, who was the older sister, she was saying, Corrie, it's going to be all right. We've just got to pray. And this lovely lady said, I, I, I can't pray for these people in here. She said, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And we've got things to thank God for. And she said, what have we got things to thank God for in this, in this horrible, dirty hall where we are being brutalised day after day? We thank God that we have each other. We thank God that we're in the same barracks. They knew that their father had died after 10 days in his prison. And there was a huge amount of sadness and pain in their hearts. And then they thought about the man who had betrayed them. And Betsy said, I think of him often. Corrie said, yeah, I do as well. Betsy said, yeah, I think of him often and I pray for him. Pray for him? She said, yes, he must be feeling dreadful. He must be so tortured with what he's done. And so this quiet little sister explained to her younger sister that they needed to pray and they needed to give thanks for what they had. They did wonder after a while why the guards didn't come into their barracks. Once they were in there, the guards didn't seem to come. And then they discovered the reason that the guards didn't come was that these horrible, dirty mattresses that they lay on were filled with fleas. Corrie said, I guess I've got to thank God for the fleas. Yes, said her sister. That's why the guards don't come. That's why we can read the word. That's why we can teach people about Jesus. So in the filth and the degradation, they thank God for the fleas that kept the guards out of their barracks. Betsy died in that camp on the 16th of December, 1944, aged 59. She'd always been a slightly unwell young woman. And then being in there, she came to the end of her life here and was released into the glory of freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the 28th of December of that same year, Corrie was released from that prison. It was a clerical error. Suddenly she was called for and she was given some papers and she was told that she was free to go. And not long after that, the remaining hundreds of women in that prison were all killed. Why am I telling you this this morning? I'm telling you this that because once released... For 33 years, Corrie Ten Boom travelled the world. She went through 60 countries, telling her story, teaching about God's love, and teaching about forgiveness. I don't think there was anyone better qualified to teach about forgiveness. And you know, this world is dark again, very sadly. And I want to ask you the question this morning, what enabled Corrie Ten Boom to survive? The horrors of that prison camp. 
what enabled Corrie ten Boom to preach love and forgiveness. Let me just put that last image up, please. This is someone I would have loved to have met. But what I want you to do as you look at that photograph this morning is to imagine someone with such gentleness and love and humility in her face and in her eyes being brutalised in a prison by Nazi soldiers. And yet to be able to come out looking like that, not straight away, obviously, but through the years, God blessed her and ministered to her. And as I say, she preached around the world. She preached in churches and in schools and in prisons. Sometimes God sends us back to the places where we've had the worst experiences. You know, I often think of Sean, and I know some of his schooling experience wasn't too good. Where's he gone? He's gone back into the schools. He's gone back into the schools to teach people and to tell them about Jesus. Got quite a team between the two lads, haven't we? Because a question was asked last week, Pastor Nathan asked a question, he said, when did we stop being a Christian country? And an answer came, and he said, mm, I think it was earlier than that, and I agree with him, I think it was when we took Christianity out of the schools. Yeah. And that's way back from the number that was quoted last week. When we stopped having assemblies in schools, when Jesus wasn't allowed to be mentioned anymore, when you weren't allowed to have a Bible... That's when this world, this country, this nation turned upside down. And we have people in our fellowship who are going back into the schools. I might be a tad older than these lads, but I can remember at work, a colleague who I worked with didn't even know who Jesus was or where he came from. We're taking Jesus with these lads, with Pastor Nathan, we're taking Jesus back into the schools in this city. And so God took her back into Germany, took Corrie back into Germany. She lived in America for quite a lot of her life. She also had a home in, in Holland where she and Betsy, before Betsy had died, they decided that if they ever got out, they would provide a home for people who had been imprisoned, for people who had been completely relocated, for people who were absolutely devastated because of what had happened to them. And that home, I understand, is still there. But she went back into Germany. She went back to speak to the people. She went into the prisons there. And she took his love. When they first arrested Corrie ten Boom, she was angry that she'd been betrayed. She was angry that her father, this elderly gentleman, wonderful, caring, gentle man, had been thrown into prison. She was angry that they could no longer, with the, the help of the Dutch underground, help Jewish people. And so for a little while, anger was on the throne. Anger was on the throne in Corrie's heart, in that filthy prison. So how did she get from there to being able to go all over the world sharing God's love and God's forgiveness? Because she replaced the anger that was on the throne with God's love. She put him on the throne. Not herself. Not her self-interests. Not her self-pain. 
In her self-desperation, she put Jesus back on the throne. And so she was able to do what God called her to do. God helped her. Helped her with her sister's words. Helped her with her sister's prayers to remove the anger from the throne and to enthrone Jesus. And I just want to close with an illustration that she used when uh, she went in sometimes into the schools and the prisons. And uh, she would take a torch. And she would say, well, we need to shine. We need to shine the light of who Jesus is. And, 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 and she would try to put the torch on and nothing would happen. And so she would take the back off and she would take the batteries out. And, well, the batteries are there and they're in the right way. And she would give it a whack on the back and it still didn't happen. And then she would take the other front, the other part off. And, and from there, she pulled out a little cloth, a little dirty, oily rag. She said, ah, ah, this is why it won't work. This is why it won't work. This represents our sin. Then she would put it all back together again. And... Uh, and a light would shine. Got to take the rag of our sin out, of our self-interest, of the things that happen in our lives, of the things we hold on to, and then, then the light can shine. It wasn't the batteries. It was the dirt of life. It was the sin of life. One of her famous sayings is, in darkness, God's truth shines most clear. And she said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Corrie Zenboom died on the 15th of April, 1983, on her 91st birthday. I think had she not gone through the degradation of what happened in that prison, she might have lived even longer. But she died on her 91st birthday. And I want to just pull this now and close with these two scriptures this morning. I want to read a verse to you from Isaiah 61 and a verse from Isaiah 64. Isaiah 61 and verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. See, if self-righteousness is on the throne, Jesus says, they're like filthy rags. We think we are all so good. We think we are all so okay. And in Jesus' eyes, our self-righteousness is like a filthy rag. None of you would want to put this on, would you? Just a dirty towel out of my garage, but you know what I mean? You wouldn't, would you? You wouldn't want to put that round your shoulders. And Jesus says, I will put on you a robe of righteousness. Not your righteousness, but my righteousness. I will put on you a robe of righteousness that will cover all of your sin, all of your dirtiness, and all of your self-righteousness. 
And I believe that what he's saying to us this morning in this place, brothers and sisters, is that if you don't think your light is shining, because all of us, not just Pastor Nathan, not just one or two of us in here, but all of us need to have our light shining if we are going to do anything in this city. All of us have got to have that light shining. And if you don't think that your light is shining, then I would say to you this morning, first of all, check what is on the throne, who is on the throne of your heart. Who have you allowed? What have you allowed? And check if there are any filthy rags in your life. And if there are, you come to Jesus and he will allow you to say, okay, come to me, let me into your heart, let me on your life, let me be enthroned on your life, and I will make a huge difference. The phrase we used to use a lot was, if it's Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. I know this is a, a harder message than sometimes we bring, but I could not get away from it. Jesus has so for weeks and weeks and weeks impressed this upon my heart. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. And if you haven't made him Lord of all, then that is what we need to do, that our light will shine brightly for him in this city where he has placed us. Our righteousnesses, which we think we're okay, they're like filthy rags compared to his righteousness. Our addictions, our habits, Jesus is greater and he is higher. 